I'm here with Nish from Nepal Tea. We met a few years ago in LA and at the uh, Little Tokyo like tea festival or whatever. Um, and we've stayed in touch since and I've enjoyed lots of his teas. Um, he's in Woodside, Queens right now, really as, as to quote you from 30 seconds ago at the epicenter of the epicenter. And he was, we're talking about uh, how, you know, he and his wife actually did quarantine for, for 50 days, delivery only, like really took it seriously. And, you know, so we're recording, this is now June 15th. I'm not sure when this will go live, but we're talking on June 15th. We're months into this. And, you know, this weekend, something that I looked at was I had a bunch of friends at the Black Trans Lives Matter protests or not really protest i don't know you know rally more it was it was not really protesting um it was beautiful and there's that on one hand and i'm seeing these beautiful images important images and then i'm looking at people in the west village you know standing around with with cocktails on the street wearing shorts and just hanging out with their trimmed beards fucking white people stupid motherfuckers just like for no reason risking not only their own you know this is not like an antibodies thing there's like thousands of people on the street doing this literally thousands this is not oh they're all safe no these are so what we were talking about just now is like this isn't an issue of people going out to you know protest and create social change this isn't an issue of there are people who are in dire financial straits and need to get back to work because they're choosing either getting sick or being, you know, starving. This is just regular loneliness and anxiety, which is so scary. I mean, we knew this already that our culture, our society, our civilization, whatever you want to frame it as suffered from this over the last few years, especially we've talked about it a lot more. But I mean, whoa, like people prioritizing to me, I'm, I'm super binary with it. I'm in the middle of nowhere, super isolated. And it's very binary to me. It's either I do stuff for my film. Like I risk myself for my film or that's it. Cause like my film is, is that's my life. And it's like, that's why I'm alive. So I'll go to Venice if Venice Film Festival happens, but that's it. Like otherwise, like if new people arrive to Correas where I am, like I don't talk to them, I don't see them. There's no reason. Like what? Well, so I don't get lonely. So I don't have like, you know, social anxiety. Like fuck this shit. Like this is so weird that people can't be alone for a little while, take some quiet, some meditative, some meditation time. Like with yourself and they, they also like don't take seriously what's going on like everyone just acts like because there's another thing in the news cycle that like this this pandemic is not a thing anymore and you know i say all of that onward into a conversation about tea because contextualizing like i don't know anyone who's serious about their tea who is out in the streets right now? Like everyone, like if you have good tea life, like you get this shit and you're centered and you're like, yeah, the world imposed a pause. Let's have some tea 
and let's be with our thoughts. So tell me what the energy is like in Queens right now. Um, yeah, I think a um, couple of things, um, just while you were talking about it, I was reflecting in some, one of the things that I was, uh, I found to be really powerful. It was very simple, simply stated that, you know, our um, ancestors uh, were called for war and we're just told, we're just being told to sit down on a couch inside and yeah. do it. Yeah. Right. So that's, yeah. that's kind of like the thing that we're comparing right now is to save lives. We just yeah. need to be inside and not yes. <laughs> out and about um, doing whatever with our Like life. our grandparents were drafted and sent exactly. over there, you know, and exactly. many of our peers were sent over there as well. Right. We're just told our civic responsibility is don't go out. Exactly. And, <laughs> and people can't abide. How hard is that? Like I can understand to some extent, um, like, you know, yeah, the social anxiety and just we being, um, it's difficult. Yes. I'm not saying it's really not difficult and it's easy just to be alone. A lot of people might not even um, have been alone for a very long yeah. time, but it's the need at this point. There's no other way we can, um, we can, um, you know, um, uh, tackle this so I mm -hmm. think it's so important to just understand that fact um, and just going off of that what I thought uh, one of the stats that came out from Nepal especially was during this time um, people are a lot concerned about mental health in Nepal so in mental health in Nepal is at a very very early stage where people don't think there is something like you know the concept of mental health is very um, very basic. So, mm -hmm. for example, um, suicides, um, they had more suicides than people who died from coronavirus during this time in Nepal, which wow. is crazy. Wow. Crazy, crazy. Um, the interesting fact, though, is in Nepal, what happens is um, suicides are recorded by the police. So it's more thought of as uh, not as a mental health or a health issue um, that is uh, kind of like, uh, you know, talked about in the hospitals or uh, basically, you know, that's not uh, calculated through the hospitals, but it's actually through police cases. So they're okay. thought of as like, not a crime, kind of. Yeah. yeah. I don't want to call it like a crime crime, but it, people don't see suicides as a mental health issue or the some person who's addressing this who's yeah. who's who's bringing resolution to this you know problem of this suicide is not thinking about sad and yeah. felt irritable unbearable yeah it's it is quite crazy and that was kind of some some of the things that we were talking in nepal it was like how basic knowledge is not there still and similar to that huh. i mean I, I can understand to some extent, um, you know, just living here inside. It's hard, obviously, but that's the only yeah. solution we've got. So we got to do it. We have to do it. And uh, there are people who, you know, really sincerely, like I've talked about mental health this entire, I was like, that was the beginning of my, like once this, as soon as this started, it was like, oh my God, this is going to be a mental health crisis. Like people are going to die, not because of the virus, but because they have to, you know, because of their disruption. Mm -hmm. And I've been talking about this constantly. And that's a lot of what I use my like Instagram to talk about mm -hmm. and talking to friends and being, you know, just just being a friend to, to people. But right. 
there are, you know, it's very important, I think, to distinguish. There are people with serious, serious, you know, difficulties here. And then there's just like, like I look at the West Village and like, I, I live there. I live on 15th and 6th. And I know that this is not like, you know, this, this is not a, a bunch of people who are like on their, you know, who are freaking out and, you know, off of their meds and stuff like that. And they really desperately need to do this. No, this, these are bros who are just like, you know, having some fun and, and, and want to get laid. And, and this is, this is stupid white people exercising their stupid privilege and thinking they're invincible and thinking they own everything and not giving a shit about, about any consequences for themselves and definitely not others. Yeah. But it's important that, you know, there's a lot of people who are going through something really, really, really rough. And those people need to be taken very seriously. And, you know, there's people who who are, I'm very close to who, uh, you know, I was talking about like the protests became their, connection to like they don't they would never be at a protest honestly they would they're not active in that way they don't have enough space created for themselves to be an activist that way they just need you know they're just trying to pay their rent and stay healthy chemically uh but they ended up being in these protests because they needed you know this was a thing for them to do this was a release in that sense and i was all for that i was like yeah you know i i totally get it like i that's not, of course, the ideal scenario for, you know, these are misaligned priorities, but whatever, you know, in a chaotic universe, like we're not meant to control all of this. And I'm all for these people who really, really need these therapeutic releases, mm-hmm. but I'm just, I, it needs to be distinguished Absolutely. when it's that and when it's fucking assholes mm-hmm. abusing, abusing our city and our, our world, you know, New York is in rough shape right now. It is, yeah. Definitely. Even even here, um, it's so it's so interesting to kind of just. I guess you'd see this in daily life also, but it's so interesting to see. You know, even while gro- we just recently started going groceries, um, yeah. and it's just interesting to see like all of these people who are there working in the grocery stores, like they are there because they have to pay their bills. Like they yeah. have to. They're and there are those kind of people who are risking their life essentially to mm-hmm. be able to help no, others. No, no, and they they of, are risking their lives. lives. Yeah. And, and there's the other segment, which is basically, uh, I mean, yeah, basically going out and kind of like not just risking their own lives, but risking everyone else's life. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, there's like two aspects of those. And it's kind of like, it's so interesting to see how that, um, change um how how that can change or will there even be a time where like people will actually you know you know they'll think about not just themselves but kind of like think about others too and it's it's just interesting to think about all those things and then i we're we're learning new behavior because this is not going to be a one-off i don't think oh yeah Mm -hmm. and it's also interesting very much for us to kind of like see the similar so see similar pattern uh, being followed in nepal as well while there were going on there yeah it's it's another crazy situation also because there we're having a lot of protests also right now oh wow um and it's and it's for what are they yeah what are they focused on so one of the things is um there's this um socially minority group um 
they're technically they used to be um it's kind of like a there's this caste system um mm -hmm. which basically says some caste of people are untouchables and some caste of people are like superior and all that shit right so basically that was there and what happened was one of the uh person from the um um the lower caste um married the person from the upper caste and what ended up happening was um he and his uh, some of the, the community basically beat him to death um and so that was the whole thing when black lives matter was exactly happening here we were also kind of focused on dalit lives matter these people are called dalits um and they and it, it just it just it just crazy how much you know we we coming from like these upper castes so called upper castes um exercise a similar kind of privileges which sometimes we don't even know they exist but we're doing it right so those parallels kind of, wow yeah and then they're having the same kind of protests um regarding that and were they happening anyway you think or or were the black lives matter protests inspiration or or incitement for nepal i think uh i think it was something happening parallelly um i think the uh it gave a lot more significance just to kind of have uh the say as the lead lives matter while it was happening over here as well so i think it definitely gave a lot lot more of a momentum uh for sure but i think it was already an existing thing that was happening there and it was just uh the fact that it was just too much coming in the 21st yeah. century yeah, yeah. and we're talking about people being killed for these ridiculous discrimination it's stupid thing it's, yeah and it's happening in the us right now yeah it just more crazy. Than, yeah but crazy. Yeah. all right so where does where where has your focus on tea sort of like fit into all this evolved what are you, what are you what have you been thinking about um so one of the um, things that i have been focusing on um really during the uh times of you know uh the quarantine it's obviously new for everyone new for my family this is a the venture i have is more of a family business um yeah. so you're uh, second or third generation i'm the second generation yes. second generation yeah. uh -huh. so there's like uh three of my sisters back in nepal work on the same business um and my father he's the founder so as soon as the crisis hit um i think everything was basically on on halt um and nobody had any idea of how to move forward or should we just wait it out or is mm -hmm. this going to go anytime soon or how kind of to Oh yeah I remember we were chatting a little bit toward yeah. the beginning yeah it's it's it was just kind of like a time when everything kind of paused and um I think one of the things that I um I'm proud that I did it was that um a lot of the times it's is always easy to complain and kind of like uh do not do anything but what i convinced my uh father and my sisters who were on the organization to was to why don't we take our time this time when we cannot do anything and everyone's staying at home let's take a lot of time to reflect on what have we been doing for the past 30 years with our tea farm Mm -hmm. what are the things that are going really well what are the things that we can really improve 
and kind of like dig deep into what are our values, what are what's what's the next step for Nepal tea, for our farm, for our farmers, and how can we come out of this, um, you know, um, come out of this situation and not just create what was normal before, but create a better version of that normal. And how can we do that? How can we achieve that? So the whole time, uh, what we've been doing is basically every week we're having these um, meetings and we never ha used to have these kind of meetings where I am uh, speaking from uh, the US, um, three of my sisters and my father from Kathmandu, which is the capital of uh, Nepal. And then there's- It's amazing uh, to be connected. Yeah, and five or six people who are at the farm. So mm. like three different places and just kind of like that connectivity, which kind of like it was forced upon, but it was good, right? Because everyone was forced to like stay connected through like technology. And it was just amazing to see how we had never done that. And we were being forced to, which is working out really well. Um, and now we have like meetings every uh, Sunday and Monday. So it's really the people who I used to get to see once a year or twice a year when I went to hmm. the farm. I'm with them every week. Every cool. week we are talking about the strategies of how we can improve this, how we can do that. So it's that connectivity has actually been uh, such, a, such a good thing for us right now. Um, and um, obviously we haven't had any cases in the farm itself as of now. Um, there's a lot of um, um, cases in the southern part and in Kathmandu, which is really another situation how that even came to be. Uh, but yeah, so we're still producing tea. Um, and it's, uh, of course, we have limited capacity at this time, uh, yeah. but um, we're still producing. The only thing is for the full three months, more than three months, we haven't had been able to get it out of the country. So almost like 90% of our teas are exported. Um, so nothing has gone out of the country, which is really starting to hamper uh, the company a little more financially because only, only if teas are exported will our- That's your sales, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so sales are completely halted. Uh, but we're trying to find ways and it's, it has really given us, I think this whole crisis has given us um, that, um, you know, that determination and just a way to, you know, how you need to persist in order to, you know, succeed. And you cannot just let go, like you have to persist. And we're coming up with like new ways to do things. Yeah, have there been specific adjustments that you've made to the business thinking like, oh, maybe we'll focus more on this vertical. And, you know, like, I don't know if it's, if it's shifted direct to consumer versus wholesale balance, if it's Absolutely. shifted, you know, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I think that was one of my initial changes. So uh, I was very much, very much focused on, um, you know, um, wholesale to smaller okay. uh, tea shops and tea bars around the U.S. I was very much focused on that, and was that was growing to 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 a degree. Yes, right as soon as the pandemic hit, that's gone. A <laughs> couple of couple of things that really touched my heart was when I could see like people who are my existing wholesale customers. They have their, basically everything is closed. Um, they have, I, I could see them, you know, through their Facebook stories and everything. They're, they're literally in tears talking about how this was such a personal business for them as well and how they're basically forced to shut down. And more than half of them don't even know if they're going to be open again. 
um, and it's 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 pretty crazy. So that basically shifted a whole perspective on my side as well because Definitely. this this is the pe- this these are the people that I'm catering to. I want to cater to. I will cater to obviously, but in order for me to survive, also I need to get a lot more direct to consumers who are wanting all these teas, but now they don't have a specific, um, you know, place to go to, to get these teas. So yes, um, completely shifted the focus on my business side as well. So that's Um, like a data conundrum a little bit where you have all these disconnected customers who are one step away, who mm -hmm. were previously getting it in a tea shop. They are regular customers for you perhaps, but you don't know who they are and you don't have contact with them. Right. And the connection is now severed. Yeah. So, wow. so, so, um, you have I'm to figure hoping- out how to find those people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So a lot of, um, I think one of the things, um, I've really done is when bigger companies or other companies, you know, they're slashing their budget in marketing. I am actually investing a lot more, um, in, um, social media marketing and yeah, I've been seeing your Facebook, I'm not, not, uh, not Facebook, Instagram ads. I've gotten your Instagram ads. Yeah. So I'm investing a lot more in that because a lot of people are actually spending a lot of time on social media these days, obviously. Right. That, that's really helping me get more connected to my real buyers who are my end consumers. And at the end of the day, my whole vision for the company itself is to connect the primary producers to the ultimate consumers. So bridging that gap is my whole mission and vision. So I think this whole crisis has told me, you know, I can't wait too long. Like I need to get there as fast as I can. So it has given me some form of momentum in my end goal per se. Um, what are the strategies, the tools that you have, you know, obviously like Instagram ads, but, but what else, like, how do you go direct to consumer in a more concerted way? Um, I think, I think it's, uh, it's more about, um, a couple of things that I'm working on is, um, how can I provide the most value to the consumers and what are the consumers asking, um, regarding, um, teas in general? So one thing that I've always, always believed was uh, transparency to a lot degree. Uh, Transparency, I want to be able to ensure a ridiculous uh, amount of transparency where, you know, um, be it through in 10 years down the road or I don't know, maybe sooner, but be able to use blockchain where, you know, I will be able to when you open a packet of Nepalti, you know exactly where that came from, which day was it produced, when, where, who were the farmers, and all of that connection. So that's what I want to create. And that's what I'm working on right now. That's cool. Is to have a platform where people can actually get all that information. Um, and I'm just starting it now, but that I think will create a direct-to-consumers market, which when people know that exactly where the tea was made and not just where the tea was made, who were the people that made those teas? I think that's going to create, that's going to take me one step further to my vision of connecting primary producers to the consumers. Um, and so, yeah, so that's, that's what I've been working on. It's not completely done yet, but that's uh, basically what I'm working on. Complete shift in packaging and everything as well, uh, which will allow that to happen. So those are kind of like one of the major strategies. What's the shift in packaging? 
Um, recently, I don't know, um, the shift in packaging as in, uh, I've gotten the small packets. You've gotten the small packets. Have you yeah. had bamboo packets yet? I don't think so. Yeah. So I've only the- had your like sampler packs. I've only got, I've only gotten the ones where it's like a bunch right. of teas. I've so, never bought like one, like a bunch. Of, I've never bought a large quantity of any particular. Tea. So now what's going to happen is we've already shifted towards the bamboo packaging, which, um, the interesting fact is that all of the packaging itself, I'm trying to make it as impactful and transparent as possible. So all of these, bam- we have a lot of bamboos in our farm. So we train our farmers to weave those bamboos together to make a beautiful package out of it. And we put our teas in it um, and just uh, directly okay. package everything in Nepal and get it here. So one of the other um, really most important value that I provide as a tea company is you're ensured that you're getting the freshest teas that you can at any given point in time, because what's happening with us, which is very rarely done in many other tea companies is all of the packages that you get the sampler packet or the bamboo packet or any like small 1.7 ounce package that you get, those are packed at origin. So those are packed, right? It doesn't even change a lot of hands where it's the farm that produces it. And just in Kathmandu, it's packaged and you are opening that package. Even I'm not opening anything. So you as a consumer can be assured that um, there's so less hands touching the teas and you're getting the freshest teas possible. And that's kind of like another way to kind of connect directly to the consumers to see, you know, how how you can be the person who's getting the teas as fresh as possible. So on that note, you know, I, I talk so much about how you've mentioned a couple of times, like the, the local farmers, the specific places and people that it comes from. Mm-hmm. To me, that speaks so much. The character of the actual tea that you drink speaks of the character of where it came from, who it came from, the generations, the land, mm-hmm. the weather, the everything. Uh, going more, you know, broadly, sort of the way that you see tea, you know, maybe talk a little bit about how you see like a specific farmer, mm-hmm. how do they affect, how, how does it manifest itself? Like the personality and the choices of that specific farmer go into the tea that you're drinking. Cause a lot of people, they just like, they don't understand how the, you know, the depth of affect in tea by people and the diversity of the teas and how it reflects who made it and, and how they did. So yeah. How do you, how do you think about that? And where do you, where do you come to it? Um, one of the, uh, one of the interesting things that I thought about um, regarding that is so a lot of the teas uh, when I'm working with my uh, wholesale customers, I tend to talk a lot about my people and my farmers, right? Um, and I've gone to the extent where I associate specific teas to specific farmers that I know really. Um, and, and it's so interesting just for me to kind of like understand. So rather going to the technical part, which I'll go in a bit, um, I get, wanted to give an example of how... Um, there's one person um, who is almost 80 years old. Um, and he was the first person who put the block like bricks to make the factory. 
1984, right? Mm. He was the person who literally like put the blocks to make the factory, which is currently standing. And he's still working there. He is the person who basically puts uh, the wood in the dryer for that whole flame to happen. And there's the whole big dryer <laughs> that that person. Right. And he's still there. He's like, um, this has been my whole life. And I right. love that. And that person I associate with one of our boldest and the oldest team, oh, cool. which is the country. Um, okay. so that, that taste itself gives me kind of like a reminds me of how, you know, how classic and how, you know, how far we can go to kind of understand that aspect of tea where, you know, that Kanchanjaga Noor is the tea that has been, that has not changed for more than 36 years. It's the same exact tea that we used to produce when we started the factory. I was not even wow. born, honestly. Yeah. I was not <laughs> even born. And that's this that specific tea is still the tea that what our buyers in the US and in Europe really ask for, right? And it really gives me that kind of a connection where, you know, that how, how amazing would that be um, to that person seeing like 36 years of production and we've been making like this, that same tea, which is holding on the taste buds of like thousands and thousands and thousands of people. And if they can reflect back to that, right? That's, that's one side of the story, I'd say. The other side is, I think, in terms of how, how much it uh, really matters to the farmers and the people who um, are uh, making the teas itself, um, we have people um, who have been working with us for like decades, right? And they are the ones who are plucking these teas every, every single day. And I think if um, they, it's so important just to have, since it's our own garden, if people are not really plucking with that care and with that, um, you know, with that. Uh, Can you explain a little bit to someone who's listening who might not know about handpicking and, and plucking? Uh, sure. Um, so um, our farm itself is at like about uh, 4,500 to 6,000 feet. And it's, it's uh, very steep. And people would just have, carry baskets and go to this, um, uh, to the whole steep area and pluck two leaves and a bud. So in tea, pl tea to make good quality tea, uh, orthodox tea, you would need to pluck two leaves and a bud. And, that, um, and that's how you do hand plucking every, like in a bush, you go and pluck all of them. And then you go to another bush and pluck um, from there, right? So the amount of care that's needed to just pluck that two leaves and a bud every single time for the entire day and the entire week. It's like thousands of times, probably. Thousands and thousands. Yeah. Of times. And they've been doing that for a very, very long time. If by any chance, and what it's sort of like, like a guitar, you know, someone can play the same notes, take the same guitar, give them the same musical notes, say, go play this, you know, two different people and it's going to sound different. There's just like, there's a je ne sais quoi of, of music mm -hmm. and you can't just expect, you know, you know, like Keith Richards, the way he plays his riffs right. when someone covers it, it's a different riff. Exactly. 
And I think, I think that's, that's, uh, that also um, really fits into the structure where, you know, how you pluck the whole thing, um, how you pluck two leaves and a bud also matters. If so if you get different people plucking, if you get yeah. different people handpicking, it could be just, it could be a different tea. Yeah. And it's uh, the amount of, um, you know, the care needed to kind of pluck it in the right way. You cannot pull the tea leaves. Like if you're mm-hmm. pulling the tea leaves, that's already kind of like, it's, it's a mess already. You're mm-hmm. just um, uh, not doing it right. And the most interesting things about this plant itself, which is so fascinating, is that in the first flush, which is basically when you pluck the teas after the dormant season of November, December, January, um, also February. So when you start plucking the first flush in early March, if you pluck it wrong on the first flush um, and you did not pluck it, pl- pick it right, you're going to destroy the whole second flush, which is in June and July. Right. Mm. So the amount of the care needed to just kind of like pluck it in the right way so that you don't destroy future um, right. tea, tea leaves. It's so, it's just, it's just amazing how all of these affect all these things. Um, and so, yeah, you need absolute, absolute care to do that. And then just the amount of other things that are so much needed uh, just to produce tea is when you pluck it and then you are taking it back to the factory, the way you take it, how long does it take to take it from that field to the factory, to the way, how much that becomes oxidation and exposure yes. and damage. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that part, and just kind of like one of the most interesting things in tea production, I think what I really, I, I am always fascinated is the amount of science and art um, mm. it's both a science. I talk about art. this a lot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's so fascinating to me how this combines all of that. You can obviously in terms of science, you can say, you know, this much degree of withering, this much, uh, this many mm-hmm. minutes of rolling and all that kind of stuff. But to give you a simple example, when you're oxidizing the teas after a perfectly scientific method and you're not able to capture that aroma at the peak and you capture it during the valley, then you're destroying the whole tea. Mm-hmm. So the manager should have, uh, the tea maker has a nose for, you know, while the oxidation is happening, they should have a nose for when the aroma and the flavor notes are at a peak and drive at that time so that right. they can capture all of that. Otherwise, you're not just kind of ruining, your, your tea is pretty much ruined if you're yeah. not able to do that. So, so much of a mix in art and science and, how much, what different varieties can you make from so many different types um, of kind of teas, like, you know, just trying to see so many different aspects of um, having the tea leaves when the, during the rainy season or during the first flush and different characteristics and the different thoughts you need to have to process that. It just, it just crazy. Yeah. really fascinates me in terms of how much this variations can this single plant. um, Yeah. You produce a lot of variations from one place. So how does maybe, maybe like what, what are the different processes that are going on? Is that happening through different seasons where, you know, you're going to have your green season, you're going to have your black season, or is that happening in the factory? How do you go about that? 
Um, that actually depends. Is on it different of- areas on the mountain that you're picking for different types of tea? Yeah, so it's it's uh, it's different, and it ma- it um, it is actually a mix of so many different things. So first of all, we all always have to take into the fact that what's the demand like? What are the kinds of teas that people are actually asking for, right? So we need to keep that demand side at play um, and uh, in our minds. The other side of the thing is you need to keep the supply part also where how much tea is, are we getting from and what quality, not just quantity, but what quality of tea are we getting it here? Um, similarly, as you said, as you mentioned, uh, the elevation and just the different parts of the garden, you need to re- be really careful with those as well because you are gonna make a pretty fantastic uh, golden tips from maybe a higher elevation tea than a lower, a little lower elevation tea. Mm-hmm. Similarly, um, if uh, in the first flush, you would want to make like first flush black teas rather than green teas because they have a very complex and a better characters um, than just producing green teas at that time. Similarly, just every season really depends. Um, on what kind of teas you would want to produce. And at the same time, that can change as soon as the tea leaves uh, come to the factory. So even if we're saying, you know what, we need this much of black teas today, and uh, we see that the leaves are not really fit to produce black teas, but it would actually be better to produce green teas out of those leaves, you would change that. So the manager has a lot of flexibility in terms of um, as soon as the tea arrive in the factory, they would actually have a look. And it's again, the art part coming into play where, you know, they look at the leaves, inspect the leaves, and then they're, they're, they're able to say, hey, you know what? Why don't we try making this type of tea with um, this quality? Of course, we'll have like the scientific uh, demands and all of that kind of stuff in play, but a lot of it is in the hands of the tea maker to inspect the leaves and see which tea which better version of tea can this produce? So that's kind of like, it's a pretty much a mix of a lot of different things. So I guess this is kind of, you know, a, a connected question, but I, I already know, you know, I have enough background on your, your system over there, but mm-hmm. you know, how, where do you integrate your social programs with education into like, for example, this person who you're describing, this team manager, mm-hmm. like sounds like someone who, you know, that's an important, important position that you need to cultivate and educate over time. How, how have you come? How many people is that? Is that one? Is that a bunch? Has it changed? How, how do you come to those people? And, and is it related to the education programs that you a um, couple of couple of different things. Um, so the manager. If those are unrelated, you could talk about just the manager thing, and then we'll talk about education after. <laughs> <laughs> sure, sure. Um, so the manager part, the person who's making these teas every single day, he was, he is, um, he was a professor um, in one of our schools about twenty years ago, um, and my father um, found him, and he was he was not too related to tea at that point. He was more of a professor, a teacher, right? Um, But yeah, we kind of like uh, had him as kind of like the factory manager, not really a tea maker, but a factory manager. And then we did have a tea maker from Darjeeling um, who was helping us out at that time. And this manager was there uh, when there were three different tea tea makers in the early days, even I was not even born at that time, 
but during those early days, this manager was uh, being educated through three different key masters from Darjeeling. Wow. So he kind of has that knack for, you know, um, different kind of production based on three different uh, tea makers. And he basically proved himself to become this uh, tea maker himself. So he's not formally uh, trained as in, you know, uh, formally trained as a tea maker, but he basically learned his way through these decades of training from the other tea makers. That what does formal training look like? Because like, it's such a weird world, you know, with the art and the science, like there is no centralized tea, you know, authority. So what, what does formal training look like? Um, right now, it's interesting where there's a, there's a couple, uh, there's a person um, who actually specializes in creating tea makers in Nepal. Uh, just awesome. uh, for, So he's a very young person. Um, he trains all of these other peop uh, young people from the garden. Um, and about for a year, the students live with him and make teeth throughout the year. How old is he? You said young. Um, almost, for, I want to say early 50s. Okay. So young as in like... I know what you mean, of, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, because um, I mean, tea has a generational problem where like in Japan, for example, there's just abandoned fields because the, you know, the son or daughter of the, of the former, you know, tea master, tea maker, tea keeper, whatever, didn't want to do that with their life. And there was no one else to, to pick it up. And there's just an overgrown, you know, there's, there's a tea field that might have been there for 300 years that's just sitting there now or gone because yeah. generationally someone wants to go be, you know, a TikTok influencer more than they want to tend a tea farm. Exactly. And we don't have a lot of 35 year old, you know, tea masters mm -hmm. right now. It's difficult. It, it is definitely difficult. I think uh, one thing that the person that I'm talking, the tea master who's training all these um, young people, what he's really done is he's created that, made that tea making um, art. That's awesome. Wow. I should have him on the show. Oh yeah. Yeah. I can, I can connect you guys. Yeah. Um, and how he has really made it very lucrative to become a tea maker. And the most important part is one of the other gardens that we really work with. The person making tea over there is 19 years old. Wow. He's amazing. He makes amazing teas. Right. And so that's how that's happening. But again, going back I to- I love the, that. Yeah, generational problem. We have a future. <laughs> yeah, but the generational problem not. So I think we have done good in one part, but missed out on the other. So the reason I say that is, yes, tea making, that tea maker part is very lucrative now because a lot of people are looking to start like smaller tea farms. But- and this is the problem, not just in Nepal, I think in the whole tea industry, how can we make tea plucking lucrative? That's the most important part to making tea. The tea maker part of the job might be lucrative, yes. But how do we make- We're, we're differentiating here between what you get in shops, westernized tea, any, you know, anything that's, that's post- uh, you know, post, uh, I don't know, you know, there, there, there's like a, there's like a wall between, you know, it's Nepal to, to Japan, basically post like those parts of, of Asia. If it's westernized at all through England, France, whatever America, 
you're getting machine cut, like diced up, chopped little dust. And, and, and it's, and it's picked by, they're in these rows and it just, it just, it's automated. And what you get for, so we're, we're, Nishal is talking about these like pick two leaves and a bud and there's a, there's a certain motion, you know, you can't just pull, you got to twist a little bit and it's very delicate. That is what makes his tea good. And that's what he's focusing right now on saying, how do we, how do we sort of industrialize that part of it to make it, uh, lucrative and make it worthwhile and train people and incentivize people to train in this to be this huge 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 important part of the of the process and the way that the rest of the world does it like 99% of the teammate in the world is so so we're talking about this thing that we need people to train their entire lives and we actually don't want to change them like once we have a tea we want it, that person to pick that bush that tea tree for the rest of their life and only that person or that small group of people and that's how we get good tea the contrast is a machine that has blades that spin that's what you're drinking so so the way he's talking about how important it is and how difficult it is and how it's a life pursuit to be able to pick tea in this way and that you can't really do it right without this crucial step we're that nitty gritty into it and and he's putting that much of a focus on it most of the tea if it's in a tea bag or you're buying it at a whole foods or you know anything but a few 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 places in the united states for example it's picked you know it's machine cut and it, it like the degree of trash <laughs> the difference of, in it, it's just so you're drinking ass. It's, it's a totally different thing, mm -hmm. but y'all drink it somehow. I don't know. <laughs> it is, yeah. It so is, how do we, okay. So how do we train that and how do we make people want to do that? Yeah. It's, it's, it's a, it's a bigger overarching question for the whole tea industry. I think, um, or it has to become some sort of, and I think that's what it'll eventually become is some sort of like uh, tea will become the new wine in some way where, you know, um, we're not going to mass produce it. Mm -hmm. We are only going to produce it. There should in be, in my opinion, there should be no mass produced tea. Oh, yeah. Just period. Yeah. So like when people ask, like, what's your favorite tea? I'm always, you know, like. It, it, what comes to mind is like, I, I'll think of a specific farm, you know, like, and, and I could never pick one, uh -huh. but it's like, you, you pick a, a, a terroir or a cultivar, like you don't just, Oh, I like Jasmine. Yeah. You know, <laughs> you don't do that. It's, it's like saying I like Merlot, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Oh. Exactly. So I think it's going to be very much like region origin specific limited batch I think that's the future where, you know, where people are really, um, really can um, invest their whole life in doing this sort of job. Mm -hmm. um, and I think one of the problems that we see in our farm itself is, you know, a lot of our puckers are pretty old. Um, they're, yeah. they're not young. Um, in com coming couple of decades, they're not going to be there. Um, so who are the people that are going to take over? Their children uh, are not, um, as we can see already. And plus, why? Cause of like what I do, they just want to do other stuff. 
Yeah, so um, I think one of the things is, and it's a very big dilemma uh, to an extent where, you know, we, uh, we, we actually fund all of their education and um, they're getting- Will, you, will you talk about that a little, about the education? Sure. Yeah, so our farm where uh, what we do basically is every single full-time farmer's children, we provide scholarships for their, all of their children to go to school. Um, we're basically investing in almost like 50% of the people in Nepal are not um, educated. So we're investing in the second generation um, of these tea farmers to at least get them out of the uh, vicious cycle of poverty uh, mm. through education. And that's only possible through education for sure. Um, so now the interesting uh, way is that, you know, so the tea farmers, they, are mostly they're uneducated um, and they have dedicated their whole life in this uh, process of making tea. Uh, but we invest in the um, children to go to school and they're um, obviously, they just don't wanna be plucking teas, but they wanna be investing, they wanna be investing their lives in so many different other aspects. They wanna and, be TikTok influencers. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe, why not, right? But, but yeah, so, so, that is that is the uh, transition. So we know for sure, m like more than 70-80% of their families are not gonna be able to, you know, um, carry on uh, plucking teas, right? So how do we change that? I mean, it's not just us, it's the whole tea industry. So yeah, in a the couple whole, of decades, right. that's the problem everyone's gonna face. And how do we how do we We're also facing or bubble tea and stuff yeah. like that. You know, if you go to Japan or China, if you, t if you say tea to most, you know, really not great majority of people, it's, it's bubble tea. It's, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's bubble tea. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's a very interesting problem and hopefully we'll come up with some solutions for sure. Uh, but, um, but yeah, that's, that's kind of like a generational problem we face and everyone faces and so go backwards what's the answer to that but yeah no it, w w that's something i mean that's why i have this show you know that's my answer it's not the answer that's what I'm, that's what I'm doing about it today right. you know right. i'm i'm doing this and having these conversations and connecting dots and and right. mainstreaming in a way without mm -hmm. diluting you know getting right. this to more people without messing with it mm -hmm. um but Go, go backwards a little bit for me because, you know, for me, uh, Nepal, Tibet, Himalayas, mm -hmm. you know, Darjeeling, g give me a little bit of, you know, you could frame it in, in terms of tea history, but mm -hmm. tell me about the, where you come from and, and how you ended up in New York and, and tell me about the region and, and all the ins and outs. Yeah. <laughs> I know this yeah, is so sure. broad, but just like, you know, maybe, um, maybe just frame it in the sense of tea and, and sure. where it came into yeah, yeah, for, these various for regions. Us, it's, it's, uh, I was actually explaining about this a little bit yesterday also, but yeah. So um, I don't know if you know a lot, little bit about the history of my father I, I know what's out there. I've read, ah, you know, okay. on, I've read the website and stuff like that. I've watched. Yeah. But, so, yeah. So I know um, he was, he was in politics and, and then he started yeah. this and yeah. So I think one of the mo most important things for us, why I talk about tea the way I do and why tea is not just a beverage for me. I call it a catalyst for social change is what I call cool. tea. Um, and why that's the definition for me 
and how does this all come together for me and my family and my father is because of that motive of getting our community out of poverty. So the whole story begins um, when it, it's, it's the early 60s and uh, sorry, early 70s. Um, Pastor, which is the um, area very close to Darjeeling in the eastern part of the country, it is not a very um, prosperous area. It's, it's, it's pretty much people, the living standard at that time was not good. People were having difficult times putting food on their plates, right? And uh, my father, um, I think he was seven, uh, around 17, uh, 17 years old. Um, he gets a chance to go to Darjeeling. Um, goes to Darjeeling and along with his brothers um, and friends. And he, when he gets there, he sees all these tea plantation and where people are living a decent life, they're actually working, their children are going uh, to schools and having a decent life. And he reflects back to his own village where, you know, hey, like right across the border, there's amazing teas uh, being produced and people living decent life. And we, on the other hand, are having very difficulties putting food on our plates. Mm -hmm. And why does that have to be that way? And during those times, I think uh, it was called, uh, uh, there used to be like a small community of old people who used to make decisions for the community. Um, and it was kind of like a state government, but like I do have like some small old pictures where, you know, it, there's a bunch of um, old people in the tr uh, tree and then there's like a lot of other people. They just make decisions uh, based on whatever there. So my father goes there and pitches, pitches an idea of, you know what, Darjeeling is doing this. We are basically in the same topography. Why can't we do this? Let me start this. Let me do this. Yeah. Um, since I don't have any land, uh, why don't you guys give me your land that you're not using? And I'll try to see if I can produce teas and see if that can rid our community out of poverty. That was his pitch, basically. Of course, everybody ridiculed him. Uh, nobody trusted this 17-year-old who was talking about, you know. Oh, wow, he was starting, 17. Yeah, so, so starting a tea farm and all of that. And it was just crazy, right? Um, and then the reason that they dismissed his idea was they said uh, teas can only grow in India and businesses can only run by the British. Was there... <laughs> rationale for this this mean this is a legal thing or this is a like this is just a possibility that, thing no that that was the thought at that time okay um that was the villagers thought that you know what we can't do business businesses are only done by the That's british such like a masculinized yeah and form it, of thinking yeah and in that time like in that olden days um because that's that's the only thing that they had ever seen like Companies were only run by the British at that time when they could see in India, right? So that was their whole thinking about, you know, oh, we can't do anything. Like, oh, this is only done by the British and teas can only grow in India because Nepal had not grown teas at that time in, in that specific area. So uh, that was his whole idea. And he completely, uh, my father's idea is dismissed. Uh, nobody cares. But what he does is he actually invests a lot of time and energy into learning a little bit more about tea, getting tea um, seeds, and then starting uh, the bush in his backyard with his wife, my mother. 
So they both uh, start uh, in their backyard. Um, and we still have that plant, actually, the first couple of plants that they actually um, uh, planted. And obviously, it takes four years for them to grow. And in four years, there was no convincing needed because all of these farmers who were initially, uh, you know, just dismissing the idea came to my father and they were like, hey, you know what? You've proven yourself, basically. We'll give you all of our land um, and just start the tea farm. And that's how the whole farm basically began. Almost 100 farmers pooled their lands and uh, the whole uh, factory and the first organic certified uh, tea company was born in Nepal. And it's so interesting to uh, understand that it was in such a progressive and uh, amazing model, which is a part of a cooperative now. So all of these people who gave them, gave my father the land, that was converted into shares of the company. So all of these farmers who are working in the farm, most of them, uh, they're not just workers. They're actually owners of the company itself. And that was radical at that time to be even thinking about that, right? So that's how the tea farm uh, basically started. And uh, the interesting things about like, you know, the garden is about one hour drive. Uh, right now it's a drive, but during those times they didn't even have cars. So it was almost a, like two or three hours of walk uphill. Um, and the factory was down. Um, basically you had to walk around three to four hours to get, to get there. And even in the car, in the Jeep, right to, in today's date, it takes one hour through the truck to get to the factory. Now, wow. the interesting part is all of the lands that was given to my father, it was not a usable land. So what he had said was, give me the lands that you don't use so that I can start putting teas, right? So finally, after a lot of effort, the teas, uh, we, they, they plant the teas and everything. But now the problem was the factory is down here. Tea garden is over here. Um, and there's no possible way to bring it, bring the teas to the factory. So now he gets engineers from India to come down and see like, how can we make a road here so that it goes all the way top to the, to the tea garden and it uh, can bring the whole teas down here. And mm -hmm. Indian engineers, they were like, no, that's just impossible. You can't do it. Like they dismissed it again. So <laughs> even now you'll, you'll be able to see when you get there, what the, the road is so dangerous, so, so dangerous. Um, because it was actually my father and the community people, they dug the whole road themselves. The people, the engineers, the real professionals oh, wow. were like, they, you know, they, you yeah. can't do it. That's not possible. And then, of course, they didn't lose hope. They actually went down and like started doing it themselves. And the road that we still take is the same that road. road. That and that was from what, the late 70s or early yeah. 80s? Or, yeah. 70s. So it was Crazy. still from that area. What's the and material? Like, is it is it cobblestone, concrete, dirt? What is it? It's just dirt. dirt it, it, yeah. Even till now, there's no, like, it's not been... Uh, but whatever, it yeah. does the trick. Yeah. yeah, it does the trick. Even now, the funny and the interesting part that I'm so amazed is even now, if there's two vehicles, by any chance, there aren't many vehicles, but if there's one, our vehicle is the only one that goes up and down, if by any chance there's a tractor or whatever coming from the other side, 
there's no you can there's no way there's no that's uh, it yeah so yeah. you can't actually pass so uh -huh. one either the tractor <laughs> you have to coordinate or the truck held a, has to go all the way back to wherever there's like a pretty decent uh width of the road uh -huh. where they can pass and there's like couple or three there's or four this of them. film i watched uh uh what's his name um Jafar Panahi, I think. I f yeah, I think Jafar Panahi. Um, I forget what, you know, it's an Arab country and, mm -hmm. and it's a small town that he's like, he's going off into, he's like a modern guy, but he's going into this like, mm -hmm. you know, little like underdeveloped town in the middle of the desert. And they have this bend in the mountain that that everyone has to drive around and it's single lane and they have a system where when you stop right ahead of it uh -huh. and you because if 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 two cars are on the bend at the same time they're going on this single lane bend and it's very difficult to back mm -hmm. out of so they have this system where they they have like a code like a morse code of honking the horns uh -huh. and or or like hitting a bell depending on if there's like cattle and uh, it was like, it was the, it was like the best part of this film, um, mm -hmm. just showing like city folk needing to learn this this system, mm -hmm. and that that has existed for you know hundreds of years in this place, and it works great. But when you apply it with modern civilization, people are like, this is crazy. Fuck these people. What the, oh my God. But it's worked for hundreds of years perfectly. <laughs> and it, it's kind of similar. They have like a special yeah. way of doing that. And then you can actually hear the vehicle from pretty far. Uh -huh. And that's how they coordinate no, the yeah. system. But yeah, right. it's like that kind of a rural uh, setting where all of these happen. And so... That was the whole idea of how the whole farm started. Um, for me personally, it was completely different. Um, so fast forward, uh, the whole system was going on. Uh, tea was being produced. I was born in what, 1991. So after that, I was not really, really into tea at that point. Um, came here uh, in 2011 uh, to become a CPA. Um, that was my initial thought to become a CPA I knew what to do, what classes to take and all of that kind of stuff. But I went to a liberal arts college in New Hampshire. Um, so four years of liberal arts college completely killed the CPA in me and I'm doing what I'm doing right now. <laughs> <laughs> As with all those liberal arts colleges. So I think one of the main things that changed me completely was um, first year of college. It was Man, I mean, I went to a liberal arts school. Uh -huh. Technically, I was, it was more like media arts. Like I was uh -huh. film school, but they called it liberal arts, but I fucking hated it. It didn't change me in any way. It just really? delayed me. Yeah. It changed uh -huh. me in the sense of it. It was a challenge because I hated uh -huh. it so much, but uh, it, it was like the most I've hated life. Ooh. So I think back to like that that this is like a period of time, like my, you know, late teens, early twenties when I hated life most which is normal i guess like for mm -hmm. you know for people <laughs> but um yeah but that's like what i think when i think of film school and liberal arts school mm -hmm. i think of knowing how much i can hate things <laughs> and like that you is know so it, interesting. it's perspective and lessons and it's like knowing how much i can not get along with people knowing how much i can disconnect myself from social systems mm -hmm. uh, knowing how much i can 
not, I'm not like a fuck authority. I'm not like that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Knowing how much I can distrust people in positions of authority, Mm -hmm. not because they're in a position of authority because they're fucking incompetent and they don't care and they don't think about things in a nuanced way. Mm -hmm. That's what I think about when I think about that period of my life. Mm -hmm. And they gave me a million chances because I had gotten my recommendation from one of their like, very very like most prestigious graduates Mm -hmm. so i was like i was taken care of by like my my advisor was 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 the dean Mm -hmm. and stuff like that so they would like every time i would fuck up they would just like do everything that they could to give me chances to not fuck up except address why i was fucking up they would just like let they would just give me more shots to fuck up but I would be saying, yo, I'm not going, like, it, w- it would be like, I wouldn't show up. And then they would say like, well, listen, we're going to give you more chances to show up. And it'd be like the same conditions by which I didn't show up before are still present. I'm not going to show up. Like <laughs> you could give me a hundred excused absences and I will use them. Like, it's not about excusing my behavior it there needs to be a shift in behavior which requires a shift in circumstances and if you don't want to address the circumstances which is all i'm focused on the behavior will persist hmm. so yeah that's that what is, i think about. that is that is so interesting because i think we have the complete opposite of um the liberal arts um college experience to be honest where did you go um new hampshire colby sawyer college it's a very oh, Emerson, tiny tiny boston tiny, tiny college, um, like about a thousand students. I think it was also because I, uh, that was my first time coming out of Nepal to, uh, Oh yeah. I mean, totally different experience. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Completely different. And for me, a lot of it had nothing to do with the way I was and the time in my life and the things that needed to happen, you know, the kind of separation that needed to happen that just needed to happen. It happened in a shitty way, which I think there was no other, there was no good way for that to happen for me, Hmm. but it happened, you know, but for many people, it's beautiful. And for you, it sounds like it worked amazing. Yeah, it was uh, really, because I think that's when I found myself. Uh, The first year was complete. It was just, you know, a lot of it was just being outside with a lot of freedom um, and all of that. The second year was kind of like the time when I was kind of depressed because I was not able to find my place, right? Okay. Um, thousand students, a um, lot of things going around, but where do I fit in was my question at that time in the second year. And that's when, like, I still remember this um, honors class that I took. And this person was, if we have some funds, what would you do to make something impactful? And I think that really gave me a chance to start this um, journey of entrepreneurship in some ways just because our school did not have enough resources and mm. one learning like if i if there was one thing that i learned in college was um opportunities are not where every resources are provided but in fact it's quite the opposite where there are so less resources you actually create opportunities yourself and mm. our school our college was so tiny with like so limited funds so not like did not have the clubs and anything that I wanted to get into. And that's when I and one of my friends, we said, you know what, if we had some funds, how cool would it be to take American students to a rural part of Nepal and do some projects, right? 
And so there wasn't anything like that ever done in our college. And that really, because it was never done there, I think that gave us an opportunity to kind of start that. So what we basically did was the college. Um, we- I mean, that's not, some, that's not exclusive to your college. I can't think of any college that has a program like that. So that's exclusive <laughs> kind of to the country. I don't know. I can't think of one other. And the yeah. interesting part was, um, of course, it took us a lot of effort to get that passed because we are basically saying, hey, trust us with four or five of your American students to go to this country. And uh, a lot of people haven't even heard about the country, right? And it's so interesting. But uh, what we did was we were able to go to, on the first year to two students um, and build a classroom for the underprivileged children hmm. in one of the rural parts of Nepal. And that was my inspiration. Like seven-year-old kid is my biggest inspiration in life. And the only reason uh, the school that we went to was the first free private school in Nepal, in rural part of the country. And that was started by uh, a person who dropped out of college um, in the US and went back and started a school for these underprivileged children. Um, And uh, the basic thing was I asked this child, what do you want to do in life? Just jokingly without expecting any answer. Seven-year-old? Yeah, what would I, what would I expect as an answer? And he said he wanted yeah. to become a teacher. And I was like, hey, why do you even want to become a teacher? Like again, very jokingly, I was like, I was not expecting any answers. But I think one thing that he said still resonates with me so much is he was a not he was a very underprivileged child. And what he said was, I was very fortunate um, to come to the school and have these opportunity for education. And I want to become a teacher so that I can help other children who are less fortunate than me. And that just blew my mind. CPA was completely dead right there and then. Mm-hmm. And basically, I was just kind of, I understood how much granted I was taking my entire being. And at the same time, my pursuits and everything, I was taking everything for granted. Um, then was kind of like that spark of change when um, I was like, I took, made a documentary out of it. It's on YouTube actually. And then we went back to college, showed the documentary to these, uh, to the college. And then what ended up happening, everyone was in tears and they funded us to go for the next year as well. So now the next year, what we do is we do a similar, same project, go to the same school and we build a library for them. And now out of two students, now we have eight students. and also uh, a professor went. And then um, even better was the third year when we still made a documentary. And then, um, and then we made a documentary and then um, they funded us for the third year. I had already graduated by then. And the president, awesome. of, yeah, president of the college actually gives me a call, says, um, basically. Sorry. No. Sorry. No, no, no worries. So, um, so the president of the college basically. I'll give us that, Bian. So I'm sorry. Pres- no, no worries. Uh, the president of the college basically tells me, "You've been taking students, a lot of my students, to Nepal, and I have no idea what you're doing. So I'm gonna come." So right after the earthquake, oh wow, 20, that's so 2015, cool. The president of our college comes with another group of uh, students and sees the work that we're doing. We were yeah. doing, right? And then he's so fascinated by that, that he sponsored, uh, even till date, that's ongoing, is every 
uh, year in Khobisur, there's one student specifically from Nepal that the president and his, uh, he has these funds to um, uh, provide a full scholarship to come to Khobisur. So that wow. initial idea of doing something and- uh, That's been going for what, what is that now? Like 10 now years or something? 50, yeah, 50 years. 15 years? 50 yeah, years, yeah, five, wow. five years after I wow. graduated. So every single year, there's a student from Nepal who comes to Kobe. That's so cool. And we, we do not have any intentions of, you know, this was not our end product. It happened to be, but it was amazing. It's amazing yeah, it just that, works out that, that way. one small idea could change drastically so many things, right? Um, and that's kind of like where my um, uh, pursue it for tea. And I was looking yeah. for a model of, you know, education to some extent. And at the same time, business was what I studied. So kind of like merging that together, I saw my farm had the perfect model. And I was like, why don't I just enter internationalize this concept? And it seems this- like the idea of education in general is kind of tied to the aspect of, you know, what, what we're of the future of tea. And we talk about teachers and you know, a teacher in, in the United States, at least, and really anywhere I think I can think of like South Korea as, as the, the only place I could think of that values teachers above this. But, you know, teachers are second class citizens in the United States. They are, you know, given minimum, you know, barely above minimum wage. Mm-hmm. And um, I mean, so, some have the opportunity to administrate and whatnot. But if you're not administrating, like you're not making right. real money. And we just don't put value on teaching. So if we don't put, if we don't make it the same way with like the hand picking uh, of tea, if you don't put value on this, no one's going to want to do it. Right. Or the only people who do are the people who do it as a last resort. So, exactly. you know, as I was talking about my college experience, you know, I think that a great deal of, of the responsibility for why I had a shitty college experience was because the people who were teaching me were not people who, you know, like your seven-year-old had dreams of doing this. There were people that wanted to do other things that didn't work out. So they ended up doing this or there are other things that they're doing are not lucrative enough. So they do this as a, you know, a side hustle for the extra, you know, $40,000 a year or something like that. And you're getting people who are distracted, who are bitter often, you know, they've had, they've had a long struggle with something or you're getting people who are less competent than someone, someone else could be. There's no reason to train teachers. Like, like there's no financial reason. There's no infrastructural reason to train teachers really effectively because like, you can't, you know, the way that we, we put eight years and like millions of dollars into training a doctor, for mm-hmm. example, like you can't recoup that on a teacher. So my sister got her master's in one year at like the best program in the country. But, you know, it's it's like we're looking at police brutality right now. And a lot of these um, a lot of these charts that you look at are like 110 hours of training required to become a police officer versus like you know, a chef or something yeah. like that. That's like, you know, a picket, you know, about, about how much train a doctor, you know, like um, you're talking about years, <laughs> like, like, like to become a doctor, you're talking about like a decade oh, versus to yeah. become a police officer. You can just like, uh, like, it's like becoming a real estate agent. It's literally, it's like the same thing. Like you could, you could get your real estate rental license to show apartments from Craigslist in Manhattan 
mm-hmm. in about the same time. And probably, it probably takes you longer to get your real estate license mm-hmm. than to do your 110 hours to become a cop. Mm-hmm. And teacher is like, yeah, is a little bit more, but not a lot. And, or, or you could do it with no training. You could just get the job. Like we were kind of talking about that some of the teachers that you talk about are just like, they just ended up doing it because of other things that they did, but they weren't formally trained. But yeah, my sister, like she did the best you could do. Mm-hmm. And that was like a one-year program. She did everything. She went to college, you know, she, she did a year really. And like, that's it. And I don't know. I think she's probably good. I don't really know. I've never been six since she's been born. So I've never been taught by her, <laughs> but uh, I think that's a huge problem is, is our value on education. But I don't, I don't know how to solve that. It's the same thing with like your business model with the, the, you know, the tea pluckers, like how do you shift your business model to prioritize that more? Mm-hmm. Like your business model is your business model mm-hmm. and it works as long as there's these people who want to do it at the level that you're at, but to shift all of a sudden is like, you know, that's a glacial change that needs to occur. And if you do it by yourself, it doesn't really, it's very difficult. You need the industry to shift. You need there to be efficient training. You need, you know, if you are just going to train one person, that's a tremendous amount of resources to yeah. get one person to train one person. You need a system whereby someone can, you know, you can contribute that one person's worth of resources to get 30 people. Right. But that's not the way the system works. And I, that's a dual, that's a dualistic problem of the lack of, you know, of the generational um, uh, erosion uh, in the tea industry, as well as just teaching in general, which has yeah. not eroded. That's just, it's never been, I mean, in the time of humanity, you know, the Anthropocene, I don't think we've had teachers, Except for South Korea. <laughs> I should, we should all move to South Korea. They're so smart. <laughs> Same people. Of course, they killed the virus fast. Of course. Yeah. It's very interesting. Uh, just kind of, kind of trying to relate all of these things and just, you know, just the history of these things. And at the same time, education, which really holds so much dearly to um, me personally also. And yeah. kind of like, it's special in terms of, as you said, where, you know, if teachers really have a big say in a future of what the student becomes. So these are one of the, like, they're like, like they're the best people we need um, so that, so that they would be able to create or inspire all these other, you know, their students. I think, I think, yeah, that's, that's, I had, I had an episode with my teacher from like, I had one teacher that really, uh, and I wrote about it in the description, but last week, David Meyer, I put Mm -hmm. him on the show. Who's, who's a teacher who I had, I left school in the middle. I left college in the middle and I moved back to New York. I was in school in Boston and I moved back to New York and then I took a few class. I was just this and that and trying to figure it out, but I would take classes at new school while I was just auditing classes while I was, you know, figuring it out and back in New York just to like sort of keep myself like in the flow of, of learning. And I took a random course. I just, uh, it was Japanese 
and you know i was interested in it Jap- yeah yeah it was japanese cinema and the teacher you know i walked in and i had just had this experience in, in film school in boston where i just like i hated it and people were just there was no one who was interested in the kinds of film that i was interested in and no one took it really seriously it was more for people who wanted to do like stand-up comedy and and write for you know network television and stuff this wasn't there was no I, I didn't meet anyone who was who I could talk about composition with and like real art film and then I came home and I went to this it wasn't until I went to this class where I was like I like got my ass kicked in this class with David and they were all smarter than me and they knew more than I knew and David that that class was I was like I didn't know what I was going to do because I didn't know who I didn't know where to find those people in the world but when I went into David's class I found those people Mm. and and David is still in my life like he is the first obviously he was on the show this week um but he's like first guy that I send my scripts to and Mm. uh you know I'll talk to him today because he's reading a script that he got yesterday um and he's a good teacher. You know, he was, he's an, he's an exceptional teacher. He has like a cult following, like that class that I walked into randomly mm-hmm. was like Paul Dano was in that class, like, like mm-hmm. very, very, you know, amazing actor and writer director. Now um, there's a, there were like five director, like feature film directors in that class. Mm-hmm. Wow. It, it's pretty wild. Like, 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 and, and some of them were students and some of them would just be like auditing or, or not even just showing up to David's class. He just like would have people show up mm-hmm. and yeah. So like a good teacher really mm-hmm. means something, but it's not, it's <laughs> not the standard. Yeah. I don't know. We have to cultivate that in T. I think we have to make more connections. I think that's really the, you know, you can't just build this out of nothing. I think that yeah. we need to, yeah, like like the mainstreaming of quality tea culture is so important. Yeah. That's what I want to happen. I just want more people drinking tea. We yeah. will, you know, feel less anxiety. We'll be able to be present more. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Tea is this connected sense in, in all ways to other people, to yourself, to your land, to nature. Yeah, and just kind of like understanding the fact that, you know, you, when you're drinking tea, how many people have um, kind of made that possible for you? Right. In some ways where you're drinking tea in Mexico, um, probably you got this tea from somewhere and just kind of like appreciating the fact that so many people have worked to make that beverage possible for you and appreciating that fact. And obviously it's like, and the way those people are has affected the way this tea is. Exactly. And, and so there's personality to it. There's humanity in it. It's beautiful. Yeah, it is. Tea is really beautiful in like all aspects of it, you know, just be yeah. it history, the, be it the art of making it or just the stories or just the beverage in itself or the taste or whatever. It's just so many layers and and beautiful. I'm happy you've built a beautiful tea life for yourself. (laughs) Thank you. Yeah. I hope, I hope my, my beautiful tea life would really be beautiful when I'm able to kind of financially and everywhere make it possible to be in the tea field for like six months 
mm-hmm. be in the US for another six months. So like balance my life out there. I can't do it now, but I hope to be able to do that um, in the future where I can spend a lot more time in the production part with the farmers, with the place. Um, yeah. Well, if you could figure out more direct to consumer growth, then that will make more efficient, you know, the, uh, mm-hmm. that, that will make your customer incrementally more valuable and yeah. it gets us closer to that. The yeah. wholesale model is, is nice, but it's really, there's a churn rate to it, right? you know, but the direct to consumer model is, mm-hmm. is more, it, it, it's difficult to everything that you said that's so beautiful about tea. It's difficult to pass along through the wholesale model. Sure. But when you own the relationship with the consumer, with the tea drinker, Mm -hmm. you get to share with them all these aspects. But, you know, I think that as much as I want you to sell a shitload of tea Mm -hmm. and jump to that financial layer where where you can do that split time, I don't know if it's realistic. You know, I think I think the direct to consumer model is the model for the mainstreaming of tea, and 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 I say that in a main, I, you know, mainstream is often a dirty word, but I say this in like a good way, like like the mainstreaming of, you know, quality tea, yeah, uh, done right. I, I want it to go mainstream, like like I've, I I've put it in nightclubs and stuff, like you know, I, I want I want people to find their versions, their experiences, yeah, yeah. But yeah, I think maybe this is a good time that you're, you know, pausing and meditating on on how to shift those direct to consumer relationships. That's really the answer, I think. And it's about surrounding that relationship with all the beautiful aspects, you know. Mm-hmm. That's what I hope we get to. Yeah. But we're we're moving, we're doing it. Yeah. Well, hey, listen, this has been so cool. I know we've chatted a few times in the past, but this was like, I got to really learn everything. And, mm-hmm. and uh, I say, you know, not on every episode, but like the, this is like one, this is like what makes me want to, like I have more of the like, okay, cool. Like the aspirational parts of it, uh, of doing a show like this, but like a lot of it of like what makes me excited is like, oh, cool. I get to like get a super like, you know, in-depth, understanding of uh you know of your world of tea and i i'm i I learn so much and i get better at it and i get access to it so i really appreciate it in that sense i appreciate you in that sense thank you thank you thank you for helping um kind of bringing this to life also like um it's 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 yeah i think i can sell as much but the thing is like people understanding the story behind it and kind of like, yeah, okay, well, that's what, that's what makes it stick. Yeah. So that, I hope that happens and thank you for doing that. I think this is more. Important. That's what I hope these episodes yeah. are for. Like, so, right. you know, you can make a paragraph or two somewhere in a pamphlet and in, in an ad or whatever. And like, that's cool and all, and maybe you distill it really well, but like for someone who really, you know, who's really going to get hooked, like it's, um, yeah, it, it's got to be in depth. It's got to, you got to live with it for a second. Yeah. So hopefully people can listen to this and, and, you know, get yeah. some tea club subscriptions. <laughs> um, I'll post, I'll post the link of, of where to drink. Um, what, what do you think people who are listening, what should they start with? 
I think the sampler way is sampler. Just get the sampler, yeah, cool. Yeah, just get a sampler. It's the best cool. way to kind of like get a whole tape. There's directions on it. You get everything, yeah. And there's blends. There's there's just straight leaves. There's lots of, yeah, you, you can understand the whole thing. Mm-hmm. All right, cool. Well, thank you so much. And hopefully we get to do some tea back in New York sometime yeah. in the new world. And in the meantime, <laughs> stay safe. And I hope uh, I hope everything in Nepal moves in the right direction with the, you know, socially with, with the movements happening there right now. That's so amazing to hear. Mm-hmm. So cool with the parallels, how we're so connected. It's yeah. beautiful. All right. Thank you. I'm so going to check in with you on that. Cause I want, I want to hear about the progress. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. All, All right. right. Cool, man. Okay. Enjoy the Thank week. You, you too. Thank you bye. again. Uh-huh. Ciao.